Good morning, Valley Forge, King of Prussia and the greater Philadelphia area. This is We the People, the Constitution Matters, coming to you over the freedom airways of WFYL. I'm your host, Pastor David Whitney, and my wonderful two collaborators this morning, my constitutional experts, Mike Jeremita, who we call our warrior in the courtroom, and Phil Duffy, who's our constitutional instructor. And we're walking through a series right now that we've called the Decent Dozen. That is Supreme Court cases that are constitutional, that, that uh, hold to in the majority. They're not perfect, but hold to in the major points they're making to the framers' view of our Constitution, rather than many cases that we looked at before this series on the dirty dozen of cases that, oh, wow, clearly go far, far off the the, the deep end from our founders' view of law and government. Well, today's uh, uh, presentation is on Citizens United, uh, the FEC, that's the Federal Election Commission. And this is a particularly interesting one because it has to do with financing campaign and who can contribute and uh, what restrictions and all this involved with the Federal Election Commission getting in its fingers into well, every every campaign across the country. But uh, this uh, Citizens United case is one that is hated. And I say that with the uh, milder than uh, I, I think it is actually expressed on the part of the left. They literally hate this decision and they have wanted for years now to uh, throw this decision out, replace it, overturn it, whatever they can do. But uh, thus far, they have not succeeded. So, uh, Phil, why don't you bring us your thoughts here on uh, Citizens United? To truly understand Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, one needs to understand both the Bill of Rights, including the right to free speech, and political history. Concerning political history, the background of Citizens United versus the FEC goes back at least to the Watergate scandal. Wikipedia provides some of the background. In the aftermath of Watergate, Congress passed the Federal Election Campaign Act Amendments of 1974, which put new limits on contributors to campaigns. Four years later, the FEC ruled that donors could donate unlimited money to political parties, but not the candidates themselves, if the party used that money for uh, party-building activities, such as voter registration drives, but not to directly support the candidates. Both the Republican and Democratic parties nonetheless used this money to support their candidates, and money donated to parties became known as soft money. In 1992, President George H.W. Bush uh, vetoed a bill passed by the Democratic Congress that would have, among other things, restricted the use of soft money. President Clinton pushed for a similar bill, but was unable to get both houses to agree on one bill. In 1995, Senators John McCain, Republican of Arizona, and Russ Feingold, Democrat of Wisconsin, jointly published an op-ed calling for campaign finance reform and began working on their own bill. In 1998, the Senate voted on the bill, but the bill failed to meet the 60-vote threshold to defeat a filibuster. All 45 Senate Democrats and six Senate Republicans voted to invoke cloture, but the remaining 49 Republicans voted again against invoking cloture. This effectively killed the bill for the remainder of the 105th Congress. The promoters of so-called campaign finance reform continue to push their legislation. And in 2002, a version of the legislation passed both houses of Congress. President George W. Bush signed the legislation while expressing reservations about its constitutionality. In 2003, in a 2003 test case, came before the Supreme Court of the United States, McConnell versus the FEC, upholding most of the provisions of the legislation. 
there's a sense in all of this that the legislators were attempting to rearrange the deck chairs on the sinking Titanic. Their fatal conceit was that by shutting down bad money, elect elections would become virtuous. But who was to determine what was good money and what was bad money? To overcome that challenge, all would have to adhere to the same rules according to Cornell's Legal Information Institute's website. Federal law prohibits corporations and unions from using their general treasury funds to make independent expenditures for speech that is an electioneering communication or for speech that expressly advocates the election or defeat of a candidate. 2 U.S. Code Section 441B uh, is the the uh, uh, specific section of the code here that we'll be talking about. An electioneering communication is any broadcast, cable, or satellite communication that refers to a clearly identified candidate for federal office and is made within 30 days of a primary election and that is publicly distributed, which in the case of a candidate for nomination for president means that the communication can be received by 50,000 or more persons in a state where a primary election is being held within 30 days. Corporations and unions may establish a political action committee or a PAC for express advocacy or electioneering communications purposes. And the codification of this legislation into law is referenced again as 2 U.S.C. Section 41B. We'll be referring to that in the, the future here. Ignoring the constitutionality issue for a moment, one wonders how this legislation could have been justly and cost-effectively administered. Perhaps the federal government would have relied upon the IRS to catch offenders, assuming that the organizations involved would identify such payments on tax returns. But this would have required that the IRS perform extensive audits on all organizations in the United States. There was a loophole. As long as the funds flowed through political action committees, those funds could be used for electioneering purposes. Then there was the assumption that broadcasting into insular states could be accomplished. Even if that might have worked in Alaska and, and Hawaii, imagine how impractical that would have been for the states of Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts, which are contiguous in a small geographic area. Let's look at the background of Citizens United versus the FEC and return to the Supreme Court's finding in that case. This is the background as reported by Cornell's Legal Information Institute. In January 2008, Appellate Citizens United, a nonprofit corporation, released a documentary, Hereafter, Hillary, critical of then-Senator Hillary Clinton, a candidate for her party's presidential nomination. Anticipating that it would make Hillary available on cable television through video on demand within 30 days of primary elections, Citizens United produced television ads to run a broadcast and cable television. Concerned about possible civil and criminal pen penalties for, submitting, for violating Section 441B, it sought de uh, declaratory and injunctive relief, arguing that 441B is unconstitutional as applied to Hillary. And the uh, BCRA's disclaimer, disclosure and reporting requirements uh, were unconstitutional as applied to Hillary and the ads. The district court denied Citizens United a preliminary injunction and granted appellee Federal Election Commission summary judgment. Let's look at the Supreme Court's finding. The first finding begins, according to Cornell's Legal Inf Information Institute, is because the question whether 441B applies to Hillary cannot be resolved on other narrower grounds without chilling political speech, this court must consider 
the continuing effect of the speech suppression upheld in Austin. The Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce is an earlier case that rose to the Supreme Court, the United States, in 1990 concerning election law. According to Oyez, the Michigan Campaign Finance Act prohibited corporations from using treasury money for independent expenditures to support or oppose candidates in elections for state offices. However, if a corporation set up an independent fund designated solely for political purposes, it could make such expenditures. The law was enacted with the assumption that the unique legal and economic characteristics of corporations necessitate some regulation of their political expenditures to avoid corruption or the appearance of corruption. The Michigan Chamber of Commerce wanted to support a candidate for Michigan's House of Representatives by using general funds to sponsor a newspaper advertisement. In that case, the Supreme Court found the Michigan Chamber of Commerce argued that it should have been excluded from the act's restrictions since the chamber was a non-profit ideological corporation, which was more analogous to a political association than a business firm. The court disagreed and upheld the Michigan law. Justice Marshall found that the chamber was akin to a business group given its activities, linkages with community business leaders, and high degree of members, over 75%, which were business corporations. Furthermore, Marshall found that the statute was narrowly crafted and implemented to achieve the important goal of maintaining integrity in the political process. There's a comment at the Cornell Legal Information Institute site concerning Citizens United that heightened the power of McConnell opinion in 2003. In McConnell versus Federal Election Commission, um, this court upheld limits on electioneering communications in a facial challenge, relying on holding in um, on the holding in Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce that political speech may be banned based upon the uh, speaker's corporate identity. The term facial challenge requires definition. A facial challenge contends that a government law, rule, regulation, or policy is unconstitutional as written, that is, on its face. This challenge differs from an as-applied challenge in that it invalidates a law for everyone, not just as that law is applied to a particular litigant challenging it. So, a previous Supreme Court had established a significant wall for the court in Citizens United to climb. Let's return to the latter court's finding, according to Cornell's Legal Information Institute. This case cannot be resolved on a narrower ground without chilling political speech, speech that is central to the First Amendment's meaning and purpose. The opinion continues, because Citizen United's narrower judgment, uh, arguments are not sustainable, this court must, in the exercise of its judicial responsibility, consider Section 441B's facial validity. Any other course would prolong the substantial nationwide chilling effect caused by 441B's corporate expenditure ban. In other words, the court could not come up with a narrower finding. It had to address the constitutionality of the original legislation and overcome any precedent the prior court had established in Austin versus Michigan Chamber of Commerce. The court then found this conclusion is further supported by the following. One, the uncertainty caused by the government's litigating position. Two, substantial time would be required to clarify 441B's application on the points raised by the government's position in order to avoid any chilling effect caused by an improper interpretation. And three, 
because speech itself is of primary importance to the integrity of the election process. Any speech arguably within the reach of rules created for regulating political speech is chilled. The regulatory scheme at issue may not be a prior restraint in the strict sense. However, given its complexity and the de deference courts show to administrative determinations, a speaker wishing to avoid criminal liability threats and the heavy costs of defending against FEC enforcement must ask a governmental agency for prior permission to speak. The restrictions thus function as the equivalent of a prior restraint, giving the FEC power analogous to the type of government practices that the First Amendment was drawn to prohibit. The ongoing chill on speech makes it necessary to invoke the earlier precedents that a statute that chills speech can and must be invalidated where its facial uh, invalidity has been demonstrated. And finally, Austin is overruled and thus provides no basis for allowing the government to limit corporate independent expenditures. <clears throat> Hence, 441B's restrictions when such expenditures are invalid and cannot be applied to Hillary. Given this conclusion, the part of McConnell that upheld BCRA's uh, extension of 441B's restrictions on independent corporate expenditures is also overruled. Although the First Amendment provides that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech, 441B's pre prohibition on corporate independent expenditures is an outright ban on speech backed by criminal sanctions. So what are the implications of Citizens United versus the FEC? The opinion in Citizens United versus FEC was clearly a victory for free speech in politically unconstrained elections, but it raises questions about the permanence of Supreme Court decisions. As with Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, yet to be discussed, reversing Roe v. Wade, we see in Citizens United versus FEC the need for a subsequent Supreme Court to overrule an earlier court. That underlines the true nature of the Supreme Court and the fallibility of its decisions. Given their political nature, concern for the general welfare requires us to rethink the concept of separation of powers upon which our current constitution is based. We must acknowledge that the separation is quite imperfect and reliance on that to defend the rights of the citizen and to achieve justice is quite naive. At the same time, we should not ignore the role played by legislators in creating unconstitutional statute law. Realistically, statesmanship is not rewarded in politics, and we must recognize the dark side of human nature as potential legislators are presented to the electorate for selection. Representative government is no match for the urge uh, for power that typically dwells in those who pursue public office. Finally, the average citizen should look into the mirror to discern blame. James Madison said at the Virginia Ratifying Convention to suppose that any form of government will secure liberty or happiness without any virtue in the people is, chimerical, is a chimerical idea. If there be sufficient virtue and intelligence in the community, it will be exercised in the selection of these men so that we do not depend on their virtue or put confidence in our rulers, but in the people who are to choose them. If the attitude of the average citizen concerning the nature of government is, what's in it for me? Then, as H.L. Mencken's quip about democracy will, will apply, democracy is the theory that the common people know what they want and deserve to get it, good and hard. We now have 234 years of experience of government under the current Constitution. The nation has survived a number of crises, 
but that is no guarantee it will continue to do so. In the minds of many, the nation is currently in crisis, and there are reasonable scenarios in which past success does not extend into the future. We should not be deluded by isolated victories in battles like Citizens United and Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization into believing that this nation is returning to sustainable virtue. A single federal election and the death or retirement of a couple Supreme Court justices committed to constitutionality could be the end of the republic. Citizens United arose out of an attempt to reduce the influence of money in elections. It was a futile attempt that may have committed more harm than good. Fundamentally, it was an attempt to cure cancer with aspirin. It never addressed the underlying cause of the disease, the current political system's fatal attraction to special interests. As long as those special interests find it cost-effective to promote legislation through campaign contributions, the system will remain corrupt. The answer is not to shut off the political money, but through constitutional change, make special interest influence unrewarding. That is a story for a future series, however. Oh, thank you, Phil. That's excellent. Thank you for the thorough uh, uh, unpacking of this case. And I love your word picture of, oh, yeah, trying to cure cancer with an aspirin. That does, uh, doesn't work. There's a bigger problem going on here. But the real issue that I see, that, which is why I included this in the list of the decent dozen, that's not a perfect case, of course, but is because it does protect the First Amendment right to freedom of speech when it, when it comes to elections and these issues. Now, many, many people want to criticize Citizens United and say, oh, this is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing because these corporations are going to be spending all kinds of money in, in, in election care, and this is an unfair process. Well, they are ignoring who Citizens United actually were. Citizens United is an organization whose actual stated mission is to restore the United States government to citizens' control through a combination of education, advocacy, and grassroots organization seeking to reassert the traditional American values of limited government, freedom of enterprise, strong families, and national sovereignty and security. Well, hey, that's an agenda that I can sign on for, to be certain. And when you think about it, and when it comes to uh, federal elections, how much influence or power do I have as a, a, a single citizen? You know, uh, I don't have a huge amount of money. There's no way I could uh, put forward a campaign that would uh, uh, put television ads up and, and, and radio ads and all that. It's like, well, I don't have that kind of deep pocket. But the whole idea of the Citizens United uh, group corporation, if you will, is that a group of individual citizens together, each contributing a little bit financially, could have a lot more clout than you could have as an individual citizen. So when people want to criticize this decision based on the idea that, oh, no, no, corporations now are going to have all kinds of power in the campaign and they're going to be influencing things. Well, sorry, uh, Citizens United, that group themselves do not meet uh, that, that, uh, that description. They're essentially a political action committee founded back in 1988 and, and with the position of advocating for smaller government and less intrusive government. And for that reason, they, they created the movie Hillary because they saw her as a big government person who was certainly going to expand the reach and power uh, of government. So when they put together this documentary, their purpose was to expose what Hillary was all about from uh, obviously a limited government perspective because the big government people would all love Hillary and wanted to see her elected there in 2016 and were, oh, just so much uh, weeping in their in their Wheaties in the morning when the, uh, Hillary lost. So the the 
issue we need to to ask here is, is it okay for citizens to band together and pool their resources to actually to be able to communicate their view on political issues, their view on campaigns. And that's why I believe the Supreme Court got this right. They said, yes, citizens can band together to do that. Now, there is a downside to that, of course, because that means that uh, uh, powerful uh, corporations who are not run by the average citizens and are not representative necessarily of the average citizens, they may also uh, have a leg up in this. In fact, it's, it's rather ironic that after the Citizens United, which, you know, everybody decried as, oh, this is a terrible, terrible thing. By the way, it was a 5-4 decision in the Supreme Court. So it was, you know, one of those neck and neck tight decisions here. But um, the ironic thing is that in a Democratic primary between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, Clinton's supporters actually defended the huge amount of corporate cash, not from groups like Citizens United representing you know, your your small citizen who wants small government. No, no, no. These corporations poured millions upon millions of dollars into Hillary's coffers, and their candidate was relying upon uh, those funds for her campaign. In fact, she was lauding that. So it's like, wait a minute. <laughs> the left said, no, 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 this is a terrible decision, Citizens United. But oh, it turns out that their, uh, uh, their great champion, Hillary, uh, was using corporate campaign contributions that, unlike Citizens United, were not those of uh, 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 small government people. These were corporations who whose own purpose was probably to get a, a, a hook into Hillary so that when she became president, they all believed she was, they, they figured the fix was in. They hadn't worked yet the system as clearly as they did in, in 2020 to steal the election. They thought they had stolen it, but they didn't quite steal enough votes. This is, this is my view, at least. They didn't quite steal enough votes in 2016. And so, surprise, surprise, they could not believe it that Hillary lost and Trump won. So they went back to the drawing board and, and they finagled their stealing the election uh, uh, technology a little bit closer such that in uh, 2020, uh, they stole the election for Biden this time, not, not for Hillary. But uh, it's, it's kind of ironic and, and hypocritical uh, that, the, that the left were, were attacking Citizens United as an organization and what they were doing, and yet they do the same thing, and in fact, they defend uh, the same thing. The big issue is when we as citizens want to have our voice expressed and we want to join together with other citizens to do that, should we be permitted to do that? And that really is where uh, the Supreme Court, I believe, was correct in saying, yes, this is a freedom of speech issue. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise of thereof or the freedom of speech. Freedom of speech was essential. And we need to remember that our founders experienced uh, the tyranny of King George III and his draconian governments in the colonies that were restricting freedom of of speech and freedom of the press. Interesting, the most notable case there on the uh, freedom of the press was uh, John Peter Zenger in New York, who printed a newspaper. And in his newspaper, he printed statements that were critical of the government. And uh, he was charged with seditious libel, which was an interesting crime because in England, uh, it didn't matter. Seditious libel did not depend upon the truth or error of what you were saying. That is, if you were uh, stating something that was true, it didn't matter. You could still be charged with seditious libel because what mattered if what you were saying brought the government into disrepute. 
That is, people would think poorly of the government by what you published, what you proclaimed. And uh, that, therefore, seditious libel was what, uh, you know, according to the way that law was written, that is exactly what Peter Zanger was doing in printing criticisms of uh, Governor Cosby, the governor of New York uh, colony at that point in time. And so he was put on trial and uh, his famous lawyer, Andrew Hamilton, no relation to Alexander Hamilton, defended him, not in saying that what he printed was, uh, uh, you know, contrary uh, or or not uh, under this law, but this wise attorney argued with the jury that the law itself was wrong, that the law saying that you cannot criticize the government, that you do not have freedoms, that law is wrong, and the jury ought to return a verdict of not guilty because the law was guilty, not Peter John Peter's anger. The law was wrong because it it took away the freedom of speech of, in this case, a, a printer of a newspaper. But obviously, the same principle, freedom of speech of Citizens United. They're publishing uh, a documentary on Hillary and they're in their documentary criticizing her political stance. And we need to have this kind of political discourse where uh, citizens have that opportunity to present uh, what they understand taking place and present their position. That's the essence of, of freedom of speech. Now, the kind of two-edged sword with this, of course, is that that means you're going to have a lot of corporations that aren't really representing the citizens. Uh, in fact, these corporations might be multinational corporations where the ownership is, you know, spread all over the world. And so uh, the voice of, you know, people in China or the voice of people in Russia are part of this. Well, that that's really a difficult problem that I don't know. This case, Citizens United, I don't think could actually solve that problem. That's a bigger problem and a problem that has to do with the, the way our world is now structured, where corporations are actually bigger than many, many governments. If you look at, uh, uh, you know, major corporations in the world today, the, the amount of money they have and the amount of power and influence they have outstrips that of many, many governments. And in fact, they may waltz into a country and basically make all kinds of demands of that government that it do the bidding of the corporation or else there will be consequences to that government if, uh, you know, because that's the kind of power these corporations have. So the real problem that uh, obviously I don't think Citizens United could address is how do we deal with these massive corporations that have enormous power and influence over over our world and influence, obviously, therefore, over uh, our, our political leanings. Think of uh, just one example that comes to my mind right now. Apple uh, is this massive corporation. And Apple has, from what I understand, opened back doors in its software to China. And China has required them to do this. And if you're going to operate in China, this is what you got to do. And Apple said, fine. And so the freedom of citizens in terms of what they're doing on, the, on their computer is compromised by this corporation who's doing the bidding of a political entity that's communist, <laughs> communist China, the CCP. And uh, so the freedom of the citizens is being deprived by the corporation because the corporation is more powerful than our own government, in a sense, uh, in, in how it affects our lives. And I'm not sure I have all the answers. I, I can see the problem that this this faces. That uh, uh, it, It's a problem that I think is, is beyond what the Supreme Court could handle in this case. But I think what the Supreme Court did was a good thing because they restored freedom of speech, freedom of speech that was under attack uh, as uh, Citizens United were simply trying to band together patriotic citizens who want small government government that stays within the limits of our constitution, government that is committed to the traditional values of our country, and that should be preserved. And so the right uh, the right result, I believe, uh, has taken place with Citizens uh, United, uh, the, uh, the FEC. 
Well, Mike, uh, Jeremy, what is your thoughts on uh, Citizens United? Thanks, Pastor Whitney. You know, I think there are a couple of different legal issues that are worthy of additional discussion here. And Phil touched upon one of them. First, I want to talk a little bit about the difference between a facial constitutional challenge and an as-applied constitutional challenge. You have to understand that a facial challenge to a law means that the law in and of itself is unconstitutional. No matter how it's applied, it's unconstitutional. It's unconstitutional on its face, as they say, and therefore it's unconstitutional for everyone in every situation. There's no saving it, basically. It must be struck down. With an as-applied challenge, however, it doesn't completely invalidate the law. Instead, the court, will, the court will issue an order that the law is unconstitutional, as applied for that person, and therefore it cannot be enforced for a certain party under a certain set of circumstances. And we have seen quite a few of these as-applied challenges in the context of the Second Amendment. For example, the Gun Control Act of 1968 imposes a number of reasons why a person is prohibited from possessing firearms under federal law. And one of these prohibitions involves any person who's been convicted of a felony that carries a maximum possible sentence exceeding one year, or any misdemeanor that carries a maximum possible sentence exceeding two years. And keep in mind, they're not looking to what the person actually served, the sentence actually handed down. They're looking to what the most the judge could have possibly given them based upon that crime. Now, let's limit our discussion here to misdemeanors, since most people are frankly surprised to hear that a misdemeanor can make you ineligible to possess firearms. The courts have never gone so far as to say the law itself is unconstitutional, meaning they have not ruled that it is unconstitutional to strip a person from their constitutional rights based upon a misdemeanor conviction in and of itself. But you have to understand that not all misdemeanors are created equal. I've heard many people in the context of the Trump indictment refer to some of the charges as, quote, only misdemeanors. You have to understand that just because a crime is labeled a misdemeanor doesn't mean that it's not a big deal. For example, there are quite a few mi minor crimes that are misdemeanors in Pennsylvania. So the ones that are minor, disorderly conduct, for example, could be a misdemeanor. And if you put this into perspective, you can get into some kind of minor shoving match that might not even get you detention in grade school. And that could lead to a misdemeanor in Pennsylvania. But on the other hand, involuntary manslaughter is also a misdemeanor in Pennsylvania. I'd say that's a pretty big deal. It's a much more serious misdemeanor and that it's graded a misdemeanor of the first degree, which is the most serious class of misdemeanor in Pennsylvania. But nevertheless, both crimes are in fact misdemeanors. The federal courts have ruled in as-applied challenges that the firearms prohibition was unconstitutional as applied to the plaintiff in cases involving corruption of minors and carrying of firearms without a license. The courts have denied as-applied challenges in the context of DUI and also tax fraud. My firm currently has a case in the Third Circuit Court of Appeals that is an as-applied challenge for a conviction for bookmaking. So I wanted our listeners to understand that there are two separate issues here. Whether the law is unconstitutional as applied to the set of circumstances involving the documentary, as opposed to whether the law could continue to exist in any context. Another legal issue that was not directly mentioned in the case, but I think people ought to be aware of, is the application of the First Amendment to commercial speech. Because the case dealt with corporations, people questioned whether corporations could be afforded protections under the First Amendment. Now, traditionally, there's a certain speech, a certain type of speech, that receives a lesser degree of protection, and that's called commercial speech. But not all speech by a corporation will be commercial speech. In the First Amendment case I tried in Center County, Pennsylvania, the opposition argued that my client should not be fully protected under the First Amendment 
because it should be considered commercial speech since it was made in the context of a law firm, which is a business, conducting their business and potentially profiting or achieving success through the speech. Let me tell you, this argument fell flat on its face because my client's speech was a matter of public concern regarding allegations of government corruption, which is not commercial speech. Commercial speech has more to do with restrictions on advertisements, for example. Let's say a cigarette company or an alcohol company wants to advertise, there will be restrictions on their advertisements, and that's not protected under the First Amendment the way we traditionally see the protections apply. Now, Citizens United, I think we all understand, has been criticized by people on the left since the decision came down. Perhaps some of the reason is that the justices who traditionally vote for right-leaning ideologies were responsible for the decision, and it was opposed by the left-leaning justices. Perhaps it's because these people have a legitimate concern about corporate machines being created to overwhelmingly influence elections for their benefit with policies that could hurt the little guy. I was speaking with a colleague of mine who's an excellent attorney and typically leans left, and his opinion on the case was that while he might be concerned about some of the effects of the decision, he could honestly understand why the justices reached the decision, because it was the correct legal decision. First Amendment protections really can't be picked and chosen based upon what is being said or who is saying it, because ultimately, the First Amendment isn't in place to protect popular speech. If everyone agrees, then it doesn't need protection. The First Amendment is there to protect unpopular or controversial speech because it's that speech that requires protection from suppression. We have to be very careful to not judge court decisions based upon the outcome and circumstances. It's more important that we look at the reasoning that's involved, because that same reasoning needs to be applied fairly in all contexts. And maybe one day, the reasoning helps out a party with whom you disagree. And maybe you don't like the consequences that might come from the result. But if we choose to be critical based upon those aspects, we're running the risk of not being afforded justice. And I think that's the moral of the story here. Oh, thank you, Mike. And, you know, I wonder about your your friend who leans left. It sounds like he is not like so many of the leftists we're hearing about today who decry freedom of speech, who, who you know, or all for free speech, you know, restrictions and, oh, we can't allow people to say whatever they want. College campuses are infamous for this. You know, they got this little square over here that's the free speech zone, but nowhere else on the campus do you have freedom of speech. I mean, do, do you have any sense from him or some of your other uh, friends or colleagues that uh, lean leftward if the First Amendment is dead among leftists, or is there, there, is there some life to it left there? No, I, I think you hit it right on the head there. There are people like him who still believe in the First Amendment, believe in those protections, and still believe in the Second Amendment, frankly. Um, these, this is really a new development on the left, if I must say so, relatively speaking, because when you think of the left, you think of the party that was all about free speech. <laughs> Traditionally, uh, the, the people who wanted to wear shirt t-shirts that said F the government and things of that nature, uh, you don't think of what you see today. And I really, we've only seen this uh, go out of control the last 10 years or so, if I had to put a time on it. Uh, but it's really become, if we don't like what you're saying, then you must not speak and you must not be allowed to speak and you must be deplatformed. And there are still people who consider themselves Democrats who uh, believe in free speech. I think they may be a little bit confused, if I might say so myself, <laughs> when I talk to this gentleman and we agree on 80 or 90 percent of things. Uh, it, it gets me scratching my head as to how he still considers himself left leaning. Uh, because frankly, that so much of that party has changed 
uh, particularly since the Obama administration. It, it is not the same as it used to be. Uh, but some people, that's what they've been doing their entire life, and they really can't even fathom the idea of voting for a Republican. Yeah, yeah. And, and Phil, you often talk about liberalism as it was old classical liberalism, right? I mean, that, that that's the idea of everyone should be for freedom of speech as, as well as our other freedoms. Yeah, I think that uh, there's a lot to be said for, for liberalism. I mean, uh, if you if you go back in history, you realize that the uh, the move towards liberalism, towards freedom, um, was really kind of like a, a unique moment in history because history's been dominated by by uh, monarchies, dictatorships, and all the rest of that kind of thing. So uh, you know the the idea of representative government and and liberalism really are joined at the hip. And when we lose that, or at least if a significant percent of the citizens no longer want the protection of freedom of speech, that is, they want their supposed freedom of speech protected, but not somebody else's. And by the way, that's not freedom of speech. <laughs> that's just another form of tyranny. Uh, certain speech is allowed and other speech is forbidden. Well, that is not the, the founder's view of freedom of speech, but it appears to be the younger generation has bought into this lie, or maybe I might think that they have been uh, propagandized to believe this, that the uh, s- socialist education system that uh, we suffer under has trained them to think that freedom of speech is a bad thing rather than train them in our founder's view of law and government, uh, that first of all, there is a creator God. Secondly, our rights come from him. And the only purpose of government is to protect and secure those God-given rights. And God is the one who has given us freedom of speech. How do we know that? It's throughout his word that the proclamation of the gospel, for example, the uh, uh, the telling of people the truth of God's word is something that has always been stood for as a God-given right. That's why the apostles, you know, the, when they were confronted by the government and the government in their day said, stop preaching the gospel, stop talking about Jesus. Don't tell anybody about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Well, what happened is they said, we ought to obey God rather than men. They knew that the government in that case, the Sanhedrin there in in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin were the tyrants who, instead of securing and protecting God-given rights, that government was actually attacking uh, a God-given right. We need to remember that our rights are always connected with duties. We have a duty to proclaim the gospel. Therefore, we have the right to freedom of speech. We have a duty to worship God, therefore, we have the right to freedom of religion. All of, the, all of our rights are actually connected to duties, and those duties are given to us in the supreme law of the universe, which is uh, God's law, the, the word of God. Those duties are becoming more and more difficult to decipher, though, because uh, traditionally, the idea was that you, know, you always hear you can't yell fire in a crowded theater, which on its face isn't exactly true, right? Because if the theater is in fact on fire, you can certainly yell fire in a crowded theater. The problem is when it's a lie, when it's not true and it's causing harm to other people as a result. In today's day and age, when we have all these fact checkers who are really the nonsense, right? They go out there and, and they frame something the way they'd like to frame it to say that something is false. And then they get fact-checked. We're seeing this on Twitter, where these fact-checkers are being fact-checked by Twitter <laughs> and being being put in their place since Elon Musk took over. So that's, that's one thing that's changed uh, in recent months. But over the last few years, we've seen a whole lot of these quote-unquote fact-checkers framing the conversation and framing the narrative. And as a result, it, it becomes more and more difficult to decipher what exactly 
is protected versus not protected. But in and of itself, I think the suppression of free speech has created somewhat of a conundrum because most people on the right and on the left get their information about what the opposing party believes and their values based on what television and social media these days. It's very rare these days that you're finding out what people on the opposition think by sitting at a table with them in a coffee shop and having these discussions. And when people do try to have these discussions in open forums, uh, such as there was a, a judge at a university fairly recently, I believe it was at a law school, and uh, the students had heckled him to the point where he couldn't speak. And when he asked for an administrator, the administrator got up there and basically told him he had to shut up and suppress his speech. This is somebody who was invited to be there. And the sad thing is that I think if you sit down with a lot of these people and you have discussions and you talk about individual issues as opposed to these these talking points and, uh, you know, these sort of, uh, you know, rhet rhetorical uh, things that we typically hear on news media, and you get down to the issues, I think we agree on far more, at least the, the, the normal people, as I would call that, the sane people and reasonable people will agree on this, a lot of the stuff. There are going to be certain wings of both parties that you're never going to win over. They're just out of their minds. But I think there's a good percentage of people who would uh, really find common ground on certain very specific issues that we simply don't know about because we're not having those conversations. And when the left is trying to suppress uh, freedom of speech, you're never going to have those conversations. And maybe it's just the, the people on the the far end of the spectrum on the left who are ruining it for the folks who are maybe a little bit more uh, reasonable who could still consider themselves Democrats. And so maybe the actual technological advances we have seen with, you know, uh, Facebook, Twitter, and all the, all the uh, podcasts, as well as all the 24-hour news cycle with the uh, cable news uh, stations, that that has maybe been a disadvantage to civil discourse, <laughs> where, like you say, people can't sit down and talk uh, to their neighbor or, or anyone else or can't talk in a civil fashion. Uh, so it's almost like uh, that has been a breakdown instead of an advantage. We, we might consider it an advantage because obviously, you know, uh, many things we do, including this show and so forth, there's ways in which the internet has been a, a great boon uh, to get the word out. But the the shouting down of, of those who you oppose uh, is, is just un, un, unconscionable. I was uh, speaking this past weekend at, in California to a Turning Point USA event. And I know Charlie Kirk wasn't there, but I know that Charlie Kirk has faced opposition again and again and again, everywhere he's gone, where basically the, the attempt to shut him down, not allow him to, to speak to an audience who has invited him to come. So it's not like uh, he was speaking to people who didn't want to, he's speaking to people who did want to hear him. And the audience uh, was prevented from hearing him by the leftists who don't want his freedom of speech to, to, to be honored. And that's a a breakdown in our basic civic structure that if we cannot allow uh, freedom of speech to be had, that you know those talking in uh, in terms of political issues, those talking about the the basics of our constitutional republic, are not allowed to share what they want to share. Uh, then we don't have a republic because a republic is dependent upon having that kind of discourse, give and take of ideas that ultimately lead to decisions that are made. People who select one politician on the ballot versus another politician based on information they're gathering. But if that information is prevented, 
then the whole system uh, uh, comes down. You know, what may have contributed to this is over the last you know, few years when YouTube is becoming more popular, you'll be able to find a whole host of videos on college campuses of somebody like a Ben Shapiro or a Dinesh D'Souza or even Newt Gingrich had a few of them out there. And the way it used to go with these things, back in my day, since I'm an old man, when I was in college, you'd have a speaker come and if you disagreed with that speaker and you had something to say, they'd have a, a session for a question and answer and you'd go up to the microphone and you'd pose your challenging question and you'd have a little back and forth with the person, which I think is good. Uh, but then when these things started to get publicized through YouTube, you'd have all these clips of, you know, Ben Shapiro destroys liberal or Dinesh D'Souza schools liberal. And so you had uh, these people going up there and asking these stupid questions that were grounded in idiocy. And when they're pointed out by Shapiro or D'Souza or Gingrich as to why they're completely in the wrong ballpark and explaining to them logically why what they're saying doesn't make sense, we got people with real fragile egos in those universities. You know, they need safe spaces to cry and everything like that. So they couldn't handle that. And so maybe they were getting sick of being destroyed online and being embarrassed and shamed in front of millions of people every time they went up there and tried to have uh, a battle of wits, so to speak, and and being completely unarmed in that regard. <laughs> and and therefore, uh, the, the next step in the playbook is to just try to shut them down. We can't have this out there that we're a bunch of knuckleheads and we don't know what we're talking about. You know, there's something that we can learn, I think, from the pre-Nazi era, uh, because it is definitely happening here. Uh, Basically, what happened in the 19th century in Germany was that there was this uh, contention, if you will, between classical liberalism and uh, uh, and socialism. And now <clears throat> we'll get to uh, a point where there are multiple variants of socialism, and that is the, almost as as uh, problematic as uh, uh, the battle between liberalism and, and socialism. But basically, uh, the argument was very intense in academia. And by the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, there wasn't a liberal in sight. They had been ousted from all the universities and all of the, the positions uh, were, uh, particularly in, in the soft sciences, were in the hands of socialists. So then you get into uh, the Nazi era. So what is the Nazi era? Uh, Nazism is really a particular variation of socialism. It's, National socialism, okay? It's not international socialism. So uh, the, the Nazis were um, as fierce in their opposition to their own socialists, who were not uh, national socialists, as uh, the socialists had been to the uh, uh, to the liberals. And we we see what happened. First, they were shouted out in the streets and in the in in the uh, uh, convocations, uh, as we're having right now. And then after that, it got worse because if you said something that the regime, the Nazi regime, didn't like, you were in jail, and that was probably the best that you could have been offered. Yeah, and uh, it's it's strange. What I had an experience again this past weekend. It was uh, speaking in the Bay Area, not in San Francisco itself, but the other side of the Bay, uh, that that Oakland area. But uh, there was no protesters outside of my speech, or you know, no protesters for the Turning Point USA event. But somebody had been able to hack in, and the way they set up the event, if you were attending the event, you had to register, and to register, you had to send an email. And so somebody evidently had been able to hack into that list of emails of people who registered, and they sent them a counter email 
basically saying the event has been canceled and you got to contact the so-and-so and thus and so uh, to uh, find out where or it's been moved to a different location. So <laughs> you, know, you think of uh, evil messages being sent on the internet and the internet being used as a weapon. And this is what it is. It really is a war. And it's a war against, I view it, a war against the, the founder's view of law and government, a war against our constitution, because those who do not want uh, our constitutional uh, republic to survive, and that's the communists and the socialists, and they want to bring it down and destroy it, are using the weapons that are, that are in their toolbox. They have quite a large toolbox of weapons right now in which to attack anyone who, who wants to speak the truth. And I was just speaking First Amendment issues, talking about the myth of the wall of separation between church and state, that it's a bad metaphor, as uh, Chief Justice Rehnquist uh, clearly said, it's a bad metaphor based on bad history. It needs to be abolished. And so I was suggesting a way in which we could abolish that bad metaphor and replace it with a constitutional as well as obviously a biblical understanding of the, the rightful jurisdictional boundaries between church government and, and civil government. So it's interesting. I'd never heard that that form of attack, but uh, that's a new one to me. <laughs> if I could come back to the uh, the general idea of uh, constraining or restraining uh, corporate speech, um, I mentioned the, the fact that this was a little like taking uh, aspirin to, uh, to resolve cancer. Uh, the problem here is compliance, support, or just uh, going along with the Constitution of the United States, which, of course, everybody in a public office has to raise their hand and and uh, assert that they will they will do. Well, the problem here is that if you look at the legislation that is passed in Washington D.C., ninety five percent of it probably is unconstitutional. Um, things like the Department of Education and and the Department of Interior and and so forth. It just goes on and on and on. There are all kinds of interventions into the private sector of the the economy that the, the intent of the original Constitution would not have allowed. But think of the incentives for this. Uh, there, there is no incentive to today. There is no incentive to comply with the Constitution. There are a lot of incentives for a po politician to violate the Constitution. So it seems to me that until you have real penalties built into a Constitution, that would, if, if uh, I can use a, an extreme example, draw and quarter the, the rascals when they violate the Constitution. Then you get some compliance. Otherwise, forget about it. It's not going to happen. Sounds like you might be suggesting uh, uh, some proposed amendments or variations or alterations or maybe uh, uh, an entirely new Constitution. Is that, that where I hear you going? I think you hear me loud and clear. <laughs> so we're after we finish the dirty dozen, we're actually going to go to uh, add one to uh, that uh, that case, dirty dozen. Uh, after we finish the decent dozen, we're going to take a look at uh, in a series of proposed ideas about what might make a more effective constitution. Again, again, the, the whole idea of the constitution is to protect our God-given rights, and if it's not functioning and it's not doing that correctly, well, the Declaration of Independence says we have another. God-given right, that is to alter that form of government or to actually abolish that form of government, which is exactly what they were doing in 1776 and also what they did in 1787 when they proposed the Constitution. They were proposing an abolishment of the Articles of Confederation, which was the first form of government at the federal level. But these are, these are all issues that we need to wrestle with because if freedom of speech dies and it, it, it uh, is not protected, then the whole idea of the constitutional republic 
uh, it, it dies along with it. So it must be preserved. Now, it seems to me that uh, one of the problems that we've had is that uh, uh, we've, we've adopted Rousseau's view of the world, which is uh, the so-called will of the majority. Uh, and it's, it's actually been uh, put up on an altar that the, the majority uh, somehow has wisdom that, you know, uh, that is not shared by uh, the natural law. And it's absolute madness. Um, you can you can see uh, there's a great book that has been written on this subject, uh, the extraordinary popular delusion and the madness of crowds. That identifies all kinds of situations, including a tulip mania, a couple of financial bubbles, uh, uh, witch hunting, and and a number of other crazy things in which the majority has become thoroughly involved and convinced everybody else that this is the right way to go. Well, basically, this is this is the herding influence at work, and ultimately, as we know, the herd can go right over the cliff, as it often does. So the the answer is we've got to balance that kind of herding instinct, if you will. We have to balance it with critical thinking. With we have to allow individuals um, through rights such as the the uh, right to free speech to express themselves to express these different ideas and to generate critical thinking the, the the mob is not interested in critical thinking it's only interested in following the leader and particularly when that leader is going to give them some benefit like uh you know some handout or like uh, AOC is promising universal basic income it's like well wait a minute where does that money come from because the government has no money, right? The only thing it, it does is take from one person to give it to another person. So uh, that, that idea is ever oh, possible. It, it does have something. It does have something. It has a huge debt. Yes. A recognized debt of uh, $31.5 trillion, which probably expands to uh, $100 trillion if we consider all of the uh, uh, the benefits that are supposedly uh, uh, to be given to the, to the citizenry. And, and that debt, I think, uh, what I'm paraphrasing what Thomas Jefferson described, he said basically to indebt the future generations basically is a destruction of their rights. You get to enjoy the money that uh, they're going to have to pay for. And that's really uh, what our enormous federal debt is about. We're impoverishing future generations, basically making them debt slaves uh, for our well-being right here and right now. But politicians love to do that because that allows them to purchase the votes they need to be reelected. Uh, endlessly. Well, this is We the People, The Constitution Matters. By the way, Mike G has a great show before ours at seven o'clock Friday morning. Go to Mike G, uh, The Law Matters in the morning at 7 a.m. on Fridays. Join us again here at We the People, The Constitution Matters. Check out the website, 1180wfyl.com. Click on the podcast right at the bottom. You'll see We the People, thorough list of our podcasts. Thank you, Russ, for, for uh, keeping that updated. Join us again next Friday at We the People, The Constitution Matters. <laughs>